So there's our questions are up on up on the screen. Take take note of those. They'll be up there for just a few more minutes as we as we get started. So let's take just a few minutes reflecting and looking back as what we what we talked about these last couple weeks. Our first week we started off by unpacking the the the, the historical narrative of Hosea in the Old Testament and, and salvation history uh, that leads us up to the uh, the minor prophet of Hosea and we said that we need to go through the Old Testament and understand the Old Testament and preach the Old Testament and teach the Old Testament because the Old Testament presents to us the riddle to which Jesus Christ is the answer and we will not understand the answer to the riddle as much until we understand the riddle or at least we hear the riddle. Sorry Ben, can you see? Okay. And so we walk through how God has called out Abraham to be his people in Genesis and through that uh, long story, right, long story, very short, uh, the, the people were led into Egypt by God as a provision for his people to, uh, uh, to provide for his people. Uh, yet Israel then was put into slavery by the Egyptians. And so they were in bondage some 400 years, and then God rescued his people from bondage through, uh, uh, through Moses. Uh, after some time of wandering, they eventually made it to the to the land, <clears throat> flowing with milk and honey, and and there. It was a metaphor, by the way. They didn't really literally have rivers with honey and milk, uh, but it was a metaphor for the abundance and the fruitfulness of of the land. Uh, and then God gave them a king. We started with Saul, and then there was David, and David was kind of that that type of what the king should be, even though he was not that great, that perfect. He had major issues and major, major flaws. And then there was Solomon, whose heart was divided. Uh, his heart was divided in his idolatry um, and also with his many wives of, of idolatry and, and other gods and introduced different new gods to, to Israel. And after Solomon came the, the division, the division of the kingdom, the split in, in the kingdom where there was two tribes in the south and there was ten tribes in, in the north. And that leads us up to eventually Hosea where at somewhere, uh, um, where was what did I put here? Uh, yeah, so they have several kings. Uh, by the way, northern kingdom was pretty much a dumpster fire from the very beginning. Um, I, I, I can't say this complete confidence, but I, I'm pretty sure they never had a king where the Bible said, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Almost every single one was wickedness before the Lord. And so they were a complete dumpster fire from the very beginning, introducing uh, idols to the, to the people, to when King Ahab came in, uh, his wife Jezebel introduced the Baals to, uh, uh, to, the, to the people that they, that they worshipped, and, and finally, they were taking out, remember, uh, Jezreel and bloodshed and all that stuff from King Jehu or from Jehu. Uh, and, and then somewhere around 722 B.C. is when they fell. Hosea started his ministry somewhere around 700. So you kind of get this transition of many years. Hosea just didn't preach this in one day, right? Several years of progression. As we know, he had children, right? And those children grew up, and we know that. We saw that in our... Our, our progression from last week. And so there's this prophet, and this prophet Hosea was called by God to prophesy to Israel, to the northern kingdom, that judgment was coming upon them. And yet Hosea, uniquely different from other 
prophets because he is not just giving the justice of God and the righteousness of God. He is showing the passion of God. He is showing the, 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 the passionate love of God and the holiness of God through his preaching, but then also unique is through the, the living parable that, that God uses in uh, Hosea's life. Um, there's, there's really not many other prophets that God uses their life as a, as a, pro, as a parable, as a living testimony of, of who Israel is. I can think of like Ezekiel and maybe a couple others, but, but he's very unique in, in what he points out. But he points out something very personal and very private in the emotions of, of God. The real feelings of God is expressed to us in the book of Hosea. So he told Hosea to go marry a woman of, of whoredom. Uh, so we, we know what that word means. Uh, it's, very, it's hard to speak of. It's hard to deal with. We don't want to deal with it in a public way, but the Bible deals with it in a very public way because it's portraying the unfaithfulness of the people. And that's how God refers to his people. That's, that's who you are. This is, how I, this, is, this is your unfaithfulness to me. This is what this is like. So we see God expressing his emotion and his passion in this book. And last week, as he told uh, uh, Hosea to go redeem his wife in chapter 3, um, we saw in, in chapter 3 that love's challenge is sin, love's recovery is repentance, and love's hope is restoration. And we saw those last week. Go back and listen to those if you, if you missed those things. When I was, uh, now I'm transitioning this week now, when I was in college, um, I, I like to, uh, well, particularly my first year, uh, our friends, we would sometimes, we would, we would get in our cars somewhere around like 9, 10 o'clock, and we would drive all the way to Panama City, which was about an hour, hour and a half drive from school, and, and we would want to go to the beach and just hang out um, and, and sit there. We would sometimes go to the Awful Waffle, and we would hang out there, uh, get something to eat, and then we'd go to the beach, and we would just hang out. Sometimes we'd swim, but most of the time it was just to hang out. And, and what we wanted to do is we wanted to stay there and watch the sunrise. And we'd see the darkness for hours and hours and hours. And then we waited for the, for the, for the sun to come up. We loved that, that view. Of course, being on the West Coast, it was kind of lame because the sun came up behind you. And it, you know, then it came over the water. On the East Coast, it comes up, on the, uh, it comes up right over the, the water. But it's such an amazing picture. It's such an amazing sight. If, you, if you've never seen that, it's, so, it's such an, an amazing thing. And that darkness, and to that darkness where it's completely dark on, on, the, on the beaches, because uh, we like to go to the area where there's not, much, uh, there's not too many lights on, on right there on 98. Well, we just wanted to get to the place where it was dark so that we can see that darkness get pierced by, by the light. Darkness and light, as we talked about, even in uh, Ephesians, is a biblical metaphor that represents sin. Right? Darkness represents sin, and it represents evil. It re- represents the, the enemies of God. And then we see the other side, right? light, representing good and righteousness and, and God himself and his holiness and his glory and splendor. In fact, we even hear Jesus himself saying, I am the light of the, the world. Darkness and light are, are very common metaphors that we, we use to describe these greater realities of good and, and evil. Uh, even media has picked up on, on this, and we've, we've seen this for centuries, stories portraying darkness as, 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 as the dark, you know, as, as being dark and black, and then the goodness as being light. Right? We've, seen, we've seen those metaphors. I think the only one that ever got these mixed up was G.I. Joe, right? You guys are, those who know what I'm talking about back in the 80s, you know who I'm talking about, those two ninja guys. Um, sorry, I lost some of you on that. But movies generally, they stick with this idea. 
this darkness, right? The darkness that ensues upon this land, upon innocent people, until things are so bad, eventually light springs up. And they see how, how dark it really was, and things seem so impossible, and things seem so, so bad, and we're never going to overcome this tough enemy until light finally pierces through the darkness, just like those dark mornings on the beach. Just like those dark mornings on the, on the, on the beach. We, we, we know this. We like, we're very familiar with these, these realities because we, we see darkness all, all around us. Darkness is around us. It's everywhere. There's evil. We understand darkness and we understand light. We understand evil and we understand good. I think even those who want to say that there's no such thing as evil and there's only everybody's good, they just choose to do bad things, that all that wipes away when evil directly happens to them. That these things are real realities and we understand these things, that evil surrounds us despite how great everybody else's life looks like even on social media. And when we watch those thematic stories on television and the movies, our perception is always we are the light. I'm, I'm the good guy. right? I'm, I'm, I'm Han Solo. I'm Luke Skywalker. I'm not Darth Vader. Right? I don't want to be a stormtrooper. I'm going to be, I'm going to be the good. I'm going to be the light. I want to be the, the good side. We always envision ourselves as, as maybe even the elves and the hobbit or the Lord of the Rings or, or maybe Lucy or Susan or Edmund and, and Lion the Witch in the wardrobe or maybe something a little more contemporary. You might think of yourself being the part of the group that would be with Rick and Michonne, if you know what I'm talking about there. But the, in fact, what the Bible tells us in fact, in what the Bible tells us time and time again is a completely different story. Is that we are not the heroes. In fact, we're not even the light. But we ourselves are, are a part of the enemy. That we are accomplices with, with the darkness. In fact, by the way, our own desires to want to be the light and think ourselves as good and as the hero only points to the darkness in us. Only points to the darkness. And what Hosea tells us and shows us and points to us is that we only have one true hope. And that there's one true light for the darkness that surrounds us, including us. And that is a Savior that is like us, but is also not like us. And this is the story of the gospel, the gospel message right here in our hearts right now. This is the gospel message. This is the heart of the gospel message of light and darkness. And there's a progression that we see revealed in our passage at Mornus that, that shows us how the, the gospel message is as well. And that is in the gospel, God destroys us before he heals us. Now that's hard to fathom there. Let's talk about it. Let's show it. Chapter 4. Look at chapter 4. Chapter 4 opens up in a courtroom scene. We've moved from the family life of Hosea now into this courtroom scene of, of God bringing his charges, or as you see in verse 1, his controversy against, against Israel. Look at verse 1. It says, Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land, 
There is no faithfulness or steadfast love, no knowledge in the land. There's swearing and lying and murder and stealing and committing adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore the land mourns and and all who dwell in it languish. And also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and even the fish of the sea are taken away. We see this in, these indictments being made against Israel. Look at verse 1. No faithfulness. No steadfast love. You've, you have no knowledge of God in the land. And what he means is that you've, you've lacked to, to acknowledge me. It's not that you don't, you've never heard of me or you, you don't have even maybe the law at the time. Maybe you don't know about me. But if you just you fail to acknowledge me. You fail to, to, to look to me as your God. You fail to look to me as your heavenly Father, as your husband who cares for you and has taken care of you and has always provided for you. You've failed. And verse 2 shows us that there's a broken family. Look at the brokenness there. Swearing, lying, murder. Look at the evil that's there. They break all the bounds. And bloodshed follows bloodshed. This is, what, this is what happens. This is what sin has done. You see verse 3, that there's a broken home. What sin has done to our home. That all who dwell in the land languish. You know what languish means? It's kind of like a dull pain. You ever had dull pain? Maybe a toothache? Sometimes that's sharp, but that's kind of dull. It just kind of lingers there and throbs. Just, that's, that, that's that darkness. That's that tension that we, that we know about. That's that, that tension that we all feel around us. It languishes in the land. And yet the accusations we see that there's no faithfulness, no steadfast love, and no knowledge of God, this acknowledgement of God is what is going to be dealt with in this next chapter and a half. That there's no acknowledge of God. Look at 4. Look at verse 4. Yet, yet no one contend... And let no one accuse, for with you is my contention, O priests. You have stumbled by day, the prophet also shall stumble with you by night, and I will destroy your mother, meaning Israel, the nation. My people are destroyed for what? The lack of knowledge. Because you, the priests, you have rejected knowledge. So I reject you from being my being priests to me, and since you have forgotten the laws of your God, I will also forget your children. Children are the individuals, the people of, of Israel. The more they increased, talking about the priests, the, the more they sinned against me. I will change their glory into shame. They will feed on the sins of my people. They are greedy for their iniquity. And it shall be like the people, like priests. I will punish them for their ways, and I will repay them for their deeds. You see, I think what we see here is we see the priests were probably listening to verse, you know, chapters one through three and Hosea preaching and stuff like that and prophesying against them. And he's like, they're like, yeah, we're we're the priests, we're good. And he says he comes back and he's exposing in the in the priests and says, no, you are no different from the people. In fact, you are more to blame because you were the one who has withheld the knowledge. You have not taught them to acknowledge the Lord. 
Not just in your words, but also in your deeds. You are no different than them. You are no different than them. And this exposes, I think, even in us, this self-righteousness, this hypocrisy that the, that the priest would stand pompously in front of the people leading as if they were the, the righteous ones. And he exposes in us what I, what is called, what I think is uh, properly known as like a nominal American evangelical Christianity that, that, that puts so much emphasis that, that righteousness is really a self-righteousness that comes out how you make yourself look like on the outside. So if you do these things and you look this certain way, you look respectable on the outside, then God will honor that. When all the while, just like the priests, there's dark secrets. There's dark secrets. There's rebellious hearts and dark secrets. And, and this is what God does. God looks right into our hearts. He looks right into our hearts. He is going to judge the desire in all of us to be our own God. And our goodness will not stand up in God's court of righteousness. You see, the priest should have taught them to know God. But they rejected God. And the people rejected God. And so God is rejecting them. They've exchanged their creator They've exchanged the Creator for the created. You hear that? They exchanged the, the Creator for the created. They only wanted the stuff. They, they, they worshipped creation rather than the Creator, not God. They didn't acknowledge Him. They wanted the, the stuff. They wanted the wool and the flax and the oil. Remember that from last week? And the people were like the priests. Both groups were responsible. They both would be punished. And this is a warning to us to church leaders and to church members, that together we, we, could, we can, can collude in, in a lack of knowledge in the church. Boy, is that, is, is that an indictment against the American church? And isn't, I mean, we, we sometimes like to read that 2 Timothy chapter 4 passage, you know, is, uh, maybe you guys are familiar, like people, they don't want uh, sound doctrine, Right? They only want itching ears. Well, leaders and members work together in that. And that's what we see here. And we, we should see here the, the, the warning to us is to be very careful, to not despise the, not the, the knowledge of God, not to treat the knowledge of God lightly, not to treat it lightly. And we should not ignore the, the direction and the application of the knowledge of God and His, and His Word. Brothers and sisters, do not suppress what the Holy Spirit may be leading you week in, week out to do. How the things that you need to be applying, don't suppress that. Lean into what the Lord is doing. Don't ignore that. And I think the next thing is, is just, I think if there's anything in this world that we should never be content in, I'm going to tell you, there's one thing we should never be content in, and that is our growing and maturity in Jesus Christ. Never be content there. Always continue to grow more. Always press in to learn more. Always lean in more. Always take the next step. This is what we have here for the knowledge of God. So they failed. They're failing in their knowledge of God. Look at verse 10. 
They shall eat, but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore, but not multiply, because they have forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom, wine, and new wine, which take away the understanding. My people inquire of a piece of wood, and their walking staffs give them oracles. For my spirit of for the spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have left their God to play the whore. They sacrifice on top of the mountains and burnt offerings on the hills under oak, poplar, and terebinth. But their shade is good. Therefore your daughters play the whore, your brides commit adultery. I will not punish your daughters, and when they play the whore, nor will your brides commit adultery. And when the men go themselves, or when the men themselves go aside with, with the prostitutes, and they're speaking about the, the, the temple prostitution of the Baals and the fertility gods and things like that, the things that they would do to acts of worship so that they can get their way with those gods. Right? They'd go inside the prostitutes and sacrifice with the cult prostitutes, and a people without understanding, right, without no knowledge of God, without understanding, shall what? Shall come to ruin. Though you play the whore, O Israel, let not Judah become guilty, nor enter or enter not into Gilgal, nor go up to Beth Aven, and swear not, as the Lord lives, like a stubborn heifer, Israel is stubborn, and the Lord now feeds them like a lamb in the broad pasture. Israel is, jo- is Ephraim, and we talk about Ephraim, that's the largest of all the tribes in the northern kingdom. So he's referring to that larger tribe there, but he's and greater, he's talking northern kingdom. Ephraim is joined to idols, meaning covenantally joining with them. Leave him alone. When their drink is gone, they give themselves to whoring. The rulers clearly love shame. A wind has wrapped them in its wings, and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. That's a tough passage to read. Lord, the Lord is exposing in Israel their failing worship, aren't they? Isn't he? Their their failing worship. Their failing immorality. Their failing worship and their failing immorality that's being exposed both literally and metaphorically. Metaphorically, it's showing how the, the, the daughters that, that play the whore and their brides commit adultery. Literally, the men are going aside into the prostitutes with cultic, cult prostitutes. They have left their God to play the whore. That's very awkward for me to say. I said that last week for you guys. But it could not be clearer to us the level of unfaithfulness of Israel before such a holy God. And we want to deny that. We want to placate these words once again because we don't think of ourselves that bad. Same reason why Israel needed to hear this. And as Israel left God, they went after other gods They worship these other gods literally. G.K. Chesterton said, I don't think I have this up, I'm sorry, I'm not having a screen for this. G.K. Chesterton has a short quote. When we cease to worship God, we do not worship nothing, we worship anything. Did you catch that? 
And this is what Israel did. They, when they ceased to worship God, when they ceased in their knowledge of God and acknowledging God, it's not that they just stopped worshiping. No, they went worshiping after everything. They went worshiping after everything. And this is what's happening to knowledge, that our Israel, without knowledge, the people are worshiping everything. After all the, the Baals and the prostitutes. Look what it also exposes here. I think it was it verse 13. They went after trees. They were worshiping wood, sticks of wood, looking for oracles. This is what they were doing. Think about that. Seeking a, a, a advice from a, from a piece of wood. And we wonder to ourselves, how does the people get that way? How does people look at this chair and worship this as, as what's going to lead them and give them what they need and take care of their, their every needs? How do you get so far and do such deplorable things? And so we look back a lot of times in our generation, we look back at other generations as being ignorant. And we're like, well, they were just small-minded. They don't know the things that we know. They don't know the, the science. And they don't, have, they don't have the technology that we know. And so they know that there's, there's no gods in those things. And that's all over-spiritualization and stuff like that. That's all ridiculous. We come at it with a very scientific mind. I mean, we're educated. Who would bow down to a stick? And we're so quick to judge them. But the truth is, is what about us? How did, how did we respond? Just like for them, they responded when things weren't going their way, they would go worship the idols to get what they wanted. How did we respond, though, when something didn't go our way this last week? How did, how did we respond when, when we expected something of someone and then they didn't do it? Or when someone maybe offended us, or someone maybe lied to us? Or maybe we didn't get the recognition that we were due. Did we wallow in self-pity? Did we get angry because we did not get what we wanted? You see, that may not be a stick of wood that you're, you're, you're bowing down to, but what we've done is we've made an idol of ourselves. And we, we bow down to the idol of ourself and our reputation and our own desires. And it turns out, just like Israel, that the glory of God is not good enough for us. And that our identity really is not in Christ. We're finding our self-worth in what other people think of us. Forgetting the knowledge of God and acknowledging ourselves. And when these idols are threatened, just like the idols of Israel, when they're threatened and they crumble... What do we get? We get angry, we get fearful, we have anxiety, we give in to lust, we look to other things to comfort us. You see, the heart of man, no matter what generation, no matter what time, is still the same. We too, just like Israel, we prefer our idols of wood. We prefer the idols that our hearts create. But see how the idols did not provide for them? You see that there in the passages? You see it in 10 and 11. You see it in verse 18. Then provides, like, you're, you should eat, but you'll not be satisfied. You'll, you can play the whore, but guess what? It's not going to multiply. It's not going to happen. It's not going to give you the oracles that you need. It's not going to give you the wisdom. It's not going to satisfy. And every time we've bowed down to those, those idols, it's done nothing but the same things it's done for Israel. It only leads to shame, and it leads to guilt, and it leads to more sin, and it leads to more consequences, and it, and it leads to more sin on other people's part. It leads to judgment. It leads to more. 
You see, sin sometimes tastes really good, doesn't it? Sometimes sin tastes so good, and it tastes so satisfying, and it tastes so good to us, so sweet when we swallow it. But brothers and sisters, as you know, that it is bitter when it comes back up. It is always bitter. And these passages to us serve to us as a warning, is what are we living for? Are we bowing down to the idols of our own hearts and our own desires? Are we acknowledging the Lord? I encourage you this morning to search your heart, to, to plead to the Lord to reveal what you are living for and what you are desiring. In chapter 5, well, i go quickly because I know I'm going a little long. Chapter 5 tells us now that sin only has one end to it. Sin will not satisfy, but sin will has only one end to it. Look at verse 1. Hear this, O priests. Pay attention, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king, for the judgment is on you. I always add words, I'm sorry. For judgment is for you. For you have been a snare at Mizpah and a net spread upon Tabor. And the revolters have gone deep into slaughter. And I will discipline them all. I know Ephraim and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you have played the whore. Israel is defiled Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God, for the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they do not know the Lord. They know not the Lord, sorry. The pride of Israel testifies to her face. Israel and Ephraim shall stumble in in his guilt. Judah shall also stumble with them. With their flocks and their herds they shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He has withdrawn from them. They have dealt faithlessly with the Lord. They have borne alien children, and now the new moon shall devour them with their fields. Now, just really quickly, I want to go through this. Is basically what we are seeing here is we're seeing that what sin brings. We talked about how it brings shame and it brings guilt, but the only end that sin has is it ultimately brings uh, judgment. And God judges sin. As it blinds us, you see that in verse 3. As it hardens them in in verse 4, they can't even see their sin. They have have no concept, no reality, not even the the categories that they're playing the whore, that they're defiled. They, They can't even see that. They can't even see the spirit of whoredom that is within them. And they know not the Lord. But the judgment of God is seen in how it separates. It separates It separates them from the Lord. It brings its own darkness. It brings its own darkness within it. And we know the consequences of sin always brings its own darkness and it always brings its own judgment upon us. We see this in Romans chapter 1. God disciplines His people when they are in sin. And He does this by withdrawing Himself. This is Romans 1. He withdraws Himself from them. And that's what He's saying. I'm withdrawing Myself from you, Israel. No longer will my, my hand of protection will be on you. No longer will my, my hand of provision and my hand of care will be on you. And you think that they can manage life without acknowledging God. And this is how the judgment of God starts on them. It continues in, in verse 8, a, a passive judgment, a, a, a withdrawal uh, judgment, verse 8. Blow the horn in Gibeah, 
the trumpet in Ramah, sound the alarm in Beth-Avan, we follow you, O Benjamin. Ephraim shall become a desolation in the days of punishment among the tribes of Israel. I make known what is sure, the princes of Judah. The princes of Judah have become like those who have moved the landmark when upon them I will pour out my wrath like water. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment because he was determined to go after filth. But I like the moth to Ephraim. I'm sorry, I was supposed to stop at verse 11, but I'll read this anyways. But I am like a moth to Ephraim and like dry rot to the house of Israel. And here we see God's uh, sort of this passive judgment upon Israel where he separates himself and he, he is, he's passively now letting them to be attacked. And what he's pointing to is he's pointing to the coming judgment of, of the Assyrians that will come upon them. Look at verse 8. You can see the battlefield language there. Blow the horn. Blow the horn. This is the battlefield language. What a scary proposition. What a scary proposition that, that the God of, of the, and creator of the universe, their God was to be their joy, was to be their hope, their protection, their security, their provider, their rescuer, and their pride, and now he is gone. He has removed himself. And there's this dramatic warning, and the Assyrian army is coming. Talks about Gibeah and Ramah. These are the border towns in southern Israel, or southern, yeah, southern, southern Israel. And he says the attack is going to be so thorough that as the Assyrian army comes from the north, they are going to sweep all the way down to the south. And it's going to take over the, the whole land. And there's a side warning there to Judah. You can see that in the passages. You can see the side warning. So not only is God going to judge them in a passive way, by withdrawing himself that they may be attacked and that they would be conquered, but God is also actively judging them. God is actively judging them. Look at verse 12. Well, I already read verse 12. But I am like a moth to Ephraim and like dry rot to the house of Israel. He says, I am like this. See that? When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wounds, then Ephraim went to Assyria and he sent to the great king but he is not able to cure you for his wounds. Now he's pointing to a time when one of the kings of the northern, Israel, the northern kingdom, they were looking bad, and they knew Assyria was going to take them out, and so they decided, well, what if we go to them and, and, and beg for help <laughs> and, and, and see if we can pay them off, and, and, not, uh, and, and so they went and attacked, and it worked. They were able to pay off the king of Assyria, and, and basically they became servants of the, of the king of Assyria. The problem is, is the next guy that came along to kill that king of Israel didn't pay. And what do you think Assyria thought of that? They didn't like that. Because it would not heal them. They went to Assyria for a cure, but could not heal them. Could not heal your wound. For I would be like a lion to Ephraim, and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off, and no one shall rescue. You think God removing his protection and his care is a, is a terrible thing. And it is a terrible thing that happens to them from the Assyrian army and the, the judgment that God uses for, through the Assyrian army. But such a greater and worse thing is when, when God comes up against Israel like a roaring lion. You see that there in verse 14? Like a young lion, like a lion I will come upon you. 
And this was God's righteous response against sin, against the spiritual adultery, against the unfaithfulness and the idolatry that is in the the land. This is God's active judgment against them. Israel would be torn. God is saying, it's me, I'm doing it. I'm going to tear you. What a violent action that is. I'm going to tear you. And even though the reality is God uses other instruments such as Assyria to judge Israel and he used Babylon to judge the the southern kingdom of, of Judah, he raises those. He's actively raising up these wicked people to judge his people. That God is doing it. He is doing this. And he's doing it to judge his people of their unfaithfulness and because of their sin. Did you know that the New Testament describes us as enemies of God? We even talked about this on Wednesday night, Romans 5.10, for while we were enemies, we're not in Christ, we are enemies. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. There's other places where we're described as enemies. In our sin, we are enemies of God. We are not on the same side. We're enemies. We're at war with God, and God is at war with us. Even in our own self-righteousness, we can go to church and be enemies with God. And in this war, there is only one winner. Just like for us, God's judgment is against us both passively and actively. I already mentioned Romans 1, but this is kind of, in a sense, what the passage tells us. It says that God gave them up. I mean, he, he, he lets the leash out for sin to have its full effect and to have its consequences on our lives. And we see that. We see how people live under the consequences of sin their sin, and maybe even the sins of their fathers and sins of their mothers. We see how it falls on communities. We see how the sin of cities falls upon us. Cultures and nations all live under the consequences of sin. When there is no faithfulness, when there is no love, when there is no knowledge of God in the land, when there's, there's swearing and there's lying and there's murdering and stealing and there's committing of adultery and all the bounds and the boundaries of sin are, are broken and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Turn on the news. Turn on the news. And this isn't something unique to the 21st century. Our sin leads to all kinds of social ills because God is judging us passively by letting our sin and its consequences take its course. But God also judges actively, as we've already talked about, that even though we might have created our own hell-on-earth scenario, God has also given an internal judgment, what we call hell, upon the wicked, those who are not in Christ and those who act wickedly against the Lord will be eternally separated from the joy of God. Righteously judged, condemned eternally to God's glory. I mean, look at these images. I will tear you 
weeping and gnashing of teeth. We saw in the New Testament, right? Is there will be a flood of water. Imagine the fear of the people in California when that dam was about to burst. Water's not cool anymore. Like we go to water to play. It's a devouring moth. It's a corrosive rot. It's a festering wound. It's a vicious lion. And all sin will be judged by the Lord. It's not swept under the rug and ignored. He's righteous. And in this righteousness, He is loving and He is holy at the same time and judging His people. That's the point of Hosea. That's the point of Hosea. But look at verse 15. Look at verse 15. I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me. So what does this sound like to you? It sounds like there's hope, just like we talked about last week, that love's hope is in the restoration that God will provide. And here's, there's, here's the, the hope, that it is God who's ready to return to His people when His people repent. Love's recovery is through repentance. But look at the progression here. The progression is God first abandons them, takes them into the, the darkness, lets sin, destroys them. Jonathan Edwards, quoting on this verse, or commenting on this verse, he says this, This is God's ordinary way before, before great and signal expressions of His mercy and favor. He is very commonly so orders it in His providence and so influences men by His Spirit that they are brought to see their miserable condition as they are in themselves and to despair of the help from themselves or from an arm of flesh before he appears to them, he also makes them sensible of their sin and their unworthiness of God's help. How about some of you? Was it at your, the lowest point of darkness that, that at that moment you were then able to see the light? Brothers and sisters, this morning I, I urge you not to suppress or ignore, as I said earlier, the feelings of the conviction of sin. If God is working in you and leading you, maybe even this morning, unto salvation, this conviction of sin upon you is actually the mercy of God. And it's the, the mercy of God that is meant to lead you to salvation and repentance. Romans chapter 2, do you not presume that it is the kindness of God that leads you to repentance? Tragically, that is not what Israel has did. They ignored, they suppressed, they exchanged. And tragically, there will be thousands of people, this story is repeated every single week, where thousands and thousands of people hear the gospel every Sunday morning, and yet their heart becomes harder, and their heart becomes harder toward the gospel and to, to the Lord and the Lord's warnings of judgment they completely ignore. My friends, I pray that this will not be any of us and that we will not ignore this, that we may never tire of hearing the gospel message. We will not take it lightly. We will always work to, to apply it to our hearts and apply the gospel to our lives. So the gospel exposes us. It exposes us. It ruins us. It shows us the judgment that is coming our way. It brings the, the darkest moments of our life when sin is exposed through the judgment of God. 
But this is where then the gospel message can become so good. But it's also, that's the moment where the gospel message can be the most offensive. Because at that moment, we don't want to be told that we're wrong. We don't want to be told, once again, that we are the darkness, that we are the, we are the enemies. That we are really one of the foot soldiers of Mordor, not one of the elves. You're not good. We don't want to be told that. But this is what we need to be shown. This is what the gospel message does in showing us. It shows us the judgment of God and the destruction that is coming upon us. But it is at this moment then that there's a a sign of hope and real joy that can pierce through. There's light, as we saw in verse 15. Let's look at chapter 6. We've just got a couple more verses. We'll be done. Look at chapter 6. Now here comes Hosea. I can, I can imagine this. Like God spoke this, and there's the battlefield scene. The courtroom, the verdict was set. God, God speaks, battlefield. And then here comes Hosea up to the microphone. And Hosea speaking through the experience of, of what he has gone through with his wife, his unfaithful wife, an unworthy wife, and yet how God called him to love her and to redeem her. Listen to his words to us brothers and sisters. Verse 1, Come, let us return to the Lord. For He has torn us that He may heal us. He has struck us down that may He may bind us up. There's still hope. That there's, that there's still hope. And that's what the, the Gospel is. There's always hope in the Gospel. Nobody is too far gone. There's always hope. Look at the promise. He has torn us, but that He will heal us. He has struck us down, but He will bind us up. What a picture of the the gospel and the grace of God that has been given to us of those who are in Christ and those who are saved. Christian, right now, if you are going through something difficult, if you're going through a difficult time, this may be, I'm not saying it is, but it may be God's discipline on your life. And he's not doing this to, to get back at you, but it's only to lessen your, atten- your, your attachment to the things of the world. Hosea's message to you is wait, return, acknowledge, and he will heal you. And he will bind you up, and he will revive you and raise you up. If you're an unbeliever, or if, you're, if you know an unbeliever who's going through a hard time right now, this may be, it may be difficult and it may be painful to, for them, the things that they are going through, but maybe this is meant as the, sort of the, the wake-up for them, the, the come-to-life, that they're at the, the deepest, darkest moments of their, their life, just at this right moment that you can take the gospel to them and show them the light and the healing and the, the, the binding that God does. That maybe He is tearing them apart so that they could see the goodness of His kindness. It's to turn to the Lord. But how is it that God tears and yet He also heals at the same time? How can He do that? Most people think that, well, 
Well, it's not really God who tears. It's, you know, because of their sin and that, the consequences of that. And, and, and then it's Satan from there. Yeah, we get that. But that's not the active agent in it. It's God. God judges. God uses instruments to judge us, to draw us back to Christ or to bring us to repentance. But the answer to the question How is it that God tears and heals at the same time? Is I want to point you to one place and the one person, and that is Christ. He does that in Christ. That tearing and that healing happened at the cross. That tearing and that that healing happened at the cross. Jesus was torn so that we can be healed. Jesus was struck down so that we may be raised up. Jesus died the death that we deserved. He absorbed the punishment and the wrath that we deserved, just like Israel deserves, so that we can be called children of God. He stood at the cross as our representative. And when He was destroyed, we were destroyed with Him. We were destroyed with Him. Brothers and sisters, it is only at the cross that we can find hope and healing, and binding, and raising up. It's where we find forgiveness. And the cross, too, a part of the gospel message, is also forgiveness, or, or is, is also offensive to so many. And maybe even to us, that we would argue that it's beneath God to die. It's beneath God to come as a man and, and, and die. And some would say, and some would ask, why, I, why didn't ask God to die for me? I didn't ask God to die, die for me. Others even say how, how abusive it is for God to send His Son to die for, for that purpose. That's, that's child abuse. But it is only at the cross that instrument of judgment where we can be healed and we can be bound up and raised up and we can be brought from darkness to light. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, He Himself bore our sins in His body on a tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. Amazing. Look at verse 2. This is going to sound familiar. After two days, He will revive us. On the third day, He will rise us, raise up again. He will raise us up that we may live before Him. We, we look at that and look, that sounds, where's the two days, three days, where did that come from? What does that sound like? Well, it sounds like the resurrection, doesn't it? It sounds just like the, the, the resurrection, and, and, and this is what he's, he's speaking to her. We actually see the, the fulfillment of this in, in Christ, and I think this is what Paul meant in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 or 15 when he says, in accordance with Scriptures, Christ was raised from the dead. This is accordance with the Scriptures. He has been revived and raised up. And at that moment, when Jesus was destroyed, and then Jesus was revived, we too were revived with Him. That those who are in Christ, those who have been chosen, we are revived with Him. That is amazing. That promise is fulfilled. That promise has been fulfilled. For Jesus was utterly destroyed, and He was then raised up. When all hope seemed lost, by the way. I mean, you you see it in the emotion of the disciples when you read the Gospels. All hope seemed lost. They they scattered from him. In fact, Jesus was was the only faithful member of Israel left. There was nobody left. 
And what a last one to have, right? Dark was at its darkest. And then here came the light. He burst forth from the grave, bringing us with Him. Bringing us with Him. He is the only faithful one as our representative. And what's the application of this promise here in verse 2? Is verse 3. Let us know. Here it is. Let us know. Have knowledge. Acknowledge. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. I love that. Right? Here's the darkness and light. As sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers. As the spring rains that water the earth. And I think we see a bookend here. Going back to chapter 4, verse 1, 2, 3. You can see that. That this gospel message brings new life. And eventually, one day, there will be a culmination, the consummation of all things when Christ returns. There will be a revival of all of these things. Showers will hit the land. Spring rains will water back to the earth. And as sure as the dawn, we can be as sure as the dawn in the morning that Christ will fulfill His promises. As sure as the rain. Hosea was right. Isn't that amazing? Hosea was right. 700 and something years early, Hosea was right. The promise has been, is being fulfilled. Jesus walked out of the tomb. God's people burst into life. Like the burst of the springtime. Happening early for us this year. But the burst of springtime in winter's dryness. In winter's cold. And so the question that comes to us now is, do we share in the life that Hosea promises? And that has been achieved through the resurrection? Can we share in that life now? And the answer is yes. Press in, lean in to know the Lord, know God. I think we're, we're guilty sometimes of just wanting God to just, just kind of zap us and give us this emotional feeling. I think that's idolatry, by the way. We, we kind of guilty of feeling this way, but here Hosea calls us to what? To let us return to the Lord. To press on, as he says in verse 3. To press on. I would say press in. I would say pre lean in. Brothers and sisters, do you desire your faith to be stronger? Is it waning or is it weak? Do you struggle to treasure Jesus Christ? What is the call here? To pursue the Lord. To pursue the Lord. To continue to put yourself in places and areas and, and surround yourself with God's people in such a way that... that that you are exposed to His Word regularly by the reading of the Scripture, studying the Bible. Those are just a few of the small ways. You know, oh, how much we just treat the Bible as like this lollipop that we lick just once a week when it's meant for us to feast on daily. It's meant for us to feast on, on, on daily to devour and to savor and to delight in and to acknowledge God. We struggle in acknowledging God because we are, we are not pressing in. We're not pressing on. We're not leaning in. Today, you can acknowledge the Lord. Submit your life to Him. Find your faith in Him. And this is what Hosea promises. He will return. Just as the dawn, He will burst into new life, into, into your life. Brothers and sisters, 
the gospel message that we hold so dear and that we love so close, so closely. When we want to get right, so closely always brings darkness and judgment and destruction before it can heal, before it brings light. And to those who are being saved, darkness and, and, and judgment is not just the darkest part that they walk through, but it's the very point that they see before the light comes. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I believe, says that the, the cross is, is folly to the world, but to those who are being saved, it's the, anybody know? It's the riches of God. It's the wealth of God. And this is what the gospel is to us. This is what the, the gospel does. That all of our, all of our sins have been completely uh, uh, forgiven and satisfied in Christ. And on that day, as I said earlier, that on that day when Jesus came out of the tomb, that we too came out of the tomb. That we too, he took that judgment. He took that destruction in our place. All of our sins have been completely forgiven in him. And just like I said earlier, one day, the darkness of our sin and our flesh that we still feel in our flesh will be vanquished for all eternity. Rest your hope. Rest your weariness in the Savior. Put away sin. Put away darkness. Trust in the Savior. Lean more into the knowledge of God that this is good news. That this is the good news. And may we take this good news to the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, how it pierces our hearts and our souls. We pray as we respond that you would be glorified while we speak, how we encourage one another in the gospel. And I pray, oh Lord, that you would forgive us in so many places where we fail to acknowledge you. Would you forgive us? Would you give us confidence in Christ, confidence in the gospel this morning and the work that he has completed? That this doom of judgment and darkness that once was due to us was completely satisfied in the perfect sacrifice of your son. That just as we read earlier this morning in Romans 3, that you are the just and the justifier. And so we pray all these things in your beautiful name. Amen.